0: The pandemic has hit us hard, and healthcare workers are our first and last lines of defense. So while they're looking out for us, who's looking out for them? There has never been a more critical time to address the mental health of our healthcare community. This is Lift the Mask, voices of heroes in the silent pandemic. Join the Quell Foundation and Hartford Health's Dr. John Santopietro as we provide a podcast for healthcare workers discussing their psychological traumas associated with continual exposure to the COVID-19 pandemic.
1: Hello, my name is John Santa Pietro. I am a psychiatrist and I am the physician-in-chief at the Behavioral Health Network of Hartford Healthcare, headquartered in Hartford, Connecticut. During the pandemic, I have been part of a team providing support to healthcare workers on the front lines, and I have a particular interest in making sure that their stories get told. The Quell Foundation has put together this podcast in order to lift up the voices of those on the front lines as a way of reaching those who are still out there in the hope that they will be inspired to reach out for the help and support that is there for them. While there's been a lot of reporting about the pandemic in the news and even about the front lines of healthcare, what's unique about this podcast is that you get to hear the stories from the people that lived it and actually are still living it. I would also encourage other leaders to listen into this podcast because there are many lessons and clues about what makes good leadership in a pandemic and a crisis. It is my pleasure to welcome you to "Lift the Mask: Voices of Heroes in the Silent Pandemic." So, welcome everybody to today's podcast. Really excited to have Emily with us today. And Emily and I had a chance to talk, and you'd come to our attention because you run a press conference for the uh, Dr. Lorna Breen Hero Foundation and the legislation that's uh, been introduced, and Senator Kane, and you're a wonderful spokesperson for that. Uh, Maybe just to begin, Emily, can you just let us know, you know, what's your role and what unit do you work on in the hospital?
2: Yeah, I'm a critical care nurse. I work in the critical care unit, taking care of medical, surgical, critical care patients.
1: And you've been doing that for how long?
2: I have worked in critical care my whole nursing career, so about eight or nine years. And I've worked in this current position for about four years with adults.
1: So no stranger to significant serious illness no stranger to dealing with medical emergencies and you know I remember when I first asked you like how did the pandemic come into your attention and you, you told me a story about preparing for Ebola what's the relationship there
2: yeah so I worked in a pediatric ICU when um, there was that concern about Ebola possibly becoming or spreading and coming to the United States and um Our hospital set up Ebola units, both for adults and pediatrics, and took volunteers and went through hours and hours and hours of training and PPE and the whole process of how we would manage those patients. And we never ended up getting any Ebola patients. Thankfully, that didn't turn out to be such a big deal, but it was a huge, huge prep for several weeks.
1: Here you had been in one of the few places really been involved in preparing for Ebola and all the preparation, all the work that went on. And then it doesn't really come. How did that compare with your experience of when COVID hit in your area?
2: Yeah, I think that was one of the most shocking things to me with COVID. My husband actually is a farmer and started mentioning, you know, hey, there's this virus and I'm really concerned. I think it could really impact the economy and all this stuff. And I was like, No way, if there was a virus that was that big of a deal, we would be preparing for it. We would have been talking about it already. Uh We would be making preparations at the hospital. And it wasn't just a few weeks later that everything really blew up with COVID and it was a huge deal. And I couldn't believe how reactive we'd all been kind of as a nation, I feel like more than proactive.
1: What a different story, right? Like this virus, which now has turned into this incredibly big thing relative to Ebola you get the news of it from your husband, who's, you know, who's a farmer. And so in Virginia, you, you guys, you know, it wasn't like New York where it hit first, right? How did it actually come into your area? Did patients start presenting with symptoms? Did you start getting ready with PPE? And what was that like?
2: Yeah. They did end up sending out some videos and some, and put posters up everywhere about proper donning and doffing of PPE and everything. And it was kind of a trickle effect in this area. We started getting patients here and there and, you know, testing initially was really complicated too. So it was really uncertain how many patients we were for sure getting. And then when we would get patients that were rollouts, it would sometimes take three and four days to get their tests back. Mm -hmm. So we would have them, you know, in the, one of the units in isolation and everything until we got their tests back. And then we kept getting these projections that there was going to be a huge surge in May and then May would come and we would get maybe a little bit of a uptick, but it would kind of settle back down. And the same thing for the end of the summer, oh, there's going to be a huge uptick because it's kind of a touristy area. You know, again, there was a little bit of a spike, but nothing like that. And so there was this constant low level underlying anxiety of, oh, here it comes, here it comes. We're going to get this huge surge. We're going to get the, all these people. It's going to be crazy. You know, there was even talk of like taking shifts and spending night in the hospital so that you could get up in the morning and be right there to keep taking care of patients because they thought the surge was going to be that significant. Uh, but that and didn't end up happening until fall.
1: And this thing you said was really impactful to me. When you said it was really more reactive than proactive. I mean, the Ebola thing was proactive, right? Right. And the testing and, and how unavailable it was. And one thing struck me when we talked before about, you know, you talked about this moment when the N95s were confiscated. What was, what was that about?
2: You know, from the hospital standpoint, I think they were just trying to control inventory and know how much they had and make sure that people weren't taking stuff inappropriately, but we have always had N95s and all this PPE in our equipment room. And they even gave us a few extra boxes to store just so we would have access to them if we had a COVID patient show up or something like that. And one day they came in and took everything out of there and you had to go and sign out to get an N95. And that just with you know all the talk about the PPE shortages and everything. Also, it was just so scary because you're thinking, man, there's not even enough that we can just have access to them.
1: And anything like that ever happened in your healthcare career where supply had to be held back in order to ration it?
2: Never. I mean, we sort of laugh about it now because we used to get rule out TB patients and you would use a new N95 every single time you went in that room and we went from that to you go at the beginning of your shift and check out a N95 mask and hopefully if there's enough you can have a new one every shift you know
1: it's really powerful especially even you know contrasting to Ebola which really hit in other countries that aren't as lucky as we are to have the health system we have and the supply that we have and to be confronted as a healthcare worker in this country with we may not have enough supply of medical equipment to deal with this thing that's coming our way but again this is you know you haven't been hit by the surge you know which for you like you said comes in the fall you're seeing it you know happening all over the country and I remember you you said and I think you'd listen to one of the podcasts where somebody used the term pre-TSD is that right yeah what was that like?
2: Yeah, I just, when I was listening to that episode and you guys talked about pre-TSD, I was like, oh my gosh, yes, that is exactly right. Because the anxiety and anticipation from, you know, the end of March all through the summer of this just up, down, okay, here it comes, here it comes. It was just this constant underlying anxiety, it seemed like.
1: It's a powerful term and I use it now. I I didn't hear of it until, you know, I heard it, Caitlin in in Portland that brought that up in the podcast and it really does sort of anticipation, you know, and kind of, I think you had used the word foreboding when we talked before in Virginia, you, you're also not unused to lung issues, right? In Virginia, because uh, you have uh, minors, you know, in the population there, how did that play into the virus and COVID?
2: Yeah, and that was something we discussed a lot. We were all saying if COVID really hits this area, it will be devastating potentially because we do have so many patients that have COPD or black lung and that kind of thing from working in the mines. And if not even the mines, I mean, there's other, you know, factory jobs and things like that where people have been exposed to harsh chemicals. Unfortunately, there's a a big portion, I'm sorry, of the population that smokes, so a lot of those respiratory comorbidities, that was a huge concern.
1: Wow. So talk about pre-TSD and talk about foreboding. Here you are, you know your population collectively, their pulmonary status, their lungs are not gonna deal well with a virus like this. And and you're probably hoping it doesn't hit. And okay. so what was it like when the surge came? How did you know it was beginning to happen?
2: that was one of the other worries too, with getting these big predictions that there's going to be a surge and hearing about these things in New York and other places, but it hadn't hit here like that was with people constantly hearing it on the news. I think it was kind of this fatigue of like, Oh yeah, yeah. They keep saying it's to come, but it's not. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then people wearied of taking that seriously and taking precautions and whatever. So when it finally did start to hit, it was right around kind of the, holidays. It definitely had a big uptick starting in September, October, and our numbers just kept climbing. And then right around Thanksgiving, just skyrocketed. Our unit, basically every single bed was COVID patients. And I mean, we were seeing death pretty much every shift. And they even had talked about taking over um, the unit next door and turning it into a mini ICU to take overflow COVID patients. And there's multiple other hospitals in our system, and they were all having the same issue. They were bringing in, you know, refrigerator trucks, as a backup because the morgues were full and overflowing. It was just constant basically mm-hmm. from you know November to February.
1: It's really interesting to talk with you and hear the story you experienced where the surge hit we heard a lot about when the search, the first search hit, right? And the East Coast and the West Coast. But this story of um, you didn't get that first wave, you're sort of hoping you don't get it, it's not coming. And then it hits and it really hits. And what was that like for you? You know, you said there was a lot of death. You know, what was your experience of when you were actually in the surge?
2: it's hard to even explain all of it because you're scared for your coworkers you're scared for your community and your family you know and that was true throughout but especially as the numbers were climbing like that you're frustrated you know because people were coming in there was multiple people in the same family sometimes in the icu you know a mother and daughter a husband and wife and you know they'd all gone to a family event for Thanksgiving or whatever. And the whole family has COVID and people, you know, not masking and not taking it seriously, not, you know, Mm. all those things. And it's just hard because you're like, this could have been prevented, you know, and it's hard to see people coming in and dying like that. And then uh, being physically exhausted, you know, working overtime and working a bunch of extra shifts and then mental and emotional exhaustion from those things, but also trying to talk to family members, you know, and we couldn't have family members come up and visit. Mm -hmm. So it was a lot of talking to people over the phone.
1: So Emily, I want to go back to the the issue of the family because there's a few things in that. You know, one is it's sort of the tragedy of, you know, the way you told that story. You know, everybody in this unit, in this family was viewing the pandemic um, and not taking it as seriously as we would want And then they all get come in because they're sick. I mean, that's really powerful and sort of tragic. But also the idea that you had to experience multiple family members in your hospital or ICU. And I remember you told the story, was it a, a woman and her husband and she had been on a ventilator and what happened there?
2: Yeah. So she was on the ventilator and just really doing incredibly poorly. And it was pretty clear that there wasn't gonna be a good outcome. And her husband was also a patient in the hospital. So Mm -hmm. the nurses got her husband in a wheelchair and wheeled him over to the unit into her room so that he could sit and hold her hand while she passed. And then he ultimately ended up being an ICU patient, but thankfully he pulled through. And there were just a lot of really heartbreaking situations like that, you know, and there were times when people had both of their parents in the ICU and these adult children were having to make life and death decisions on both patients or on both parents, sorry, you know, within the same week.
1: And one of the things that really strikes me about that, when you say it's, it's so heartbreaking, my experience, and I'm interested in your experience and talking with people is that in the course of a a healthcare career let's say you're an ICU nurse or a doc you know you'll have a number of heartbreaking moments like that right but right. something happened this year where you know you almost had a lifetimes worth of heartbreaking moments in one year was that your experience
2: yeah absolutely i think that i've probably seen more death and more heartache in the past year than in my whole nursing career combined prior to that and i really don't think that's an exaggeration
1: you know, now that you're kind of realizing that, how do you make sense of it, you know, within your own experience of, of yourself in, in the work?
2: It's different every day. You know, I mm. really resonated with what Suzanne said, one of the other people in, uh, that did a podcast episode, just you feel differently every day. I mean, there's some days where you feel numb and there's some days where you feel really just burdened and weighed down by all of that. There's some days where you feel hopeful that, okay, we're going to get through this and it's, you know, it's terrible experience, but we'll get through it and move on and hope that there are some good things that come out of it, but it's really challenging. It's trying to stay in the present mentally, trying to support each other as far as coworkers and that kind of thing. And, um, you know, when someone is having a hard day talking and working through that and then having some outlets, I think is super important whether, you know, journaling or listening to music or watching a movie.
1: It's amazing how many people have said that, you know, even just the journaling thing, you know, and like you're saying, listening to to music and you're also doing a program to become an APRN. Is that right? Yes. Was it there that, you know, somebody came from the psychology department and talked with your class and that struck a chord? What What happened with that?
2: Yeah, so it was actually over the summer. And, you know, most of the people in our class are working as nurses through this pandemic in some way. And uh, they had a member of the psychology department come and do a session for everybody on cognitive behavioral therapy and coping mechanisms and that kind of thing. And that session got so much feedback. I mean, the school was blown away by how many people just went on and on about how helpful that was and asked him for more resources so that they could continue to explore those, you know, workbooks and different things like that, to explore those different ways of framing
1: things and working through things. You heard the talk?
2: Yes. Yeah.
1: What was your experience of it? Was it powerful for you?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I actually, I did my undergraduate degree in general psychology and, Mm. you know, so I was familiar with some of the Mm -hmm. concepts, but it was just so good to hear those things and to have in that moment kind of interrupt the anxiety and the being in the midst of everything and to get that outside perspective and to have some tools to kind of frame what our experience was.
1: Can I ask you about that a little bit? Because in some ways, this is part of what the podcast is about is this moment, right? Because if you think about how many people had this moment that you had versus how many people didn't have it, right? Where they, right. like you said, you're, you're in this flow and it's just, it's like wartime and then something interrupts the flow and it got our attention. So once that person had your attention, that's like maybe half the battle, but what was helpful to you about that talk?
2: I think part of what's helpful is stopping and recognizing your own thoughts, you know, what is actually going on, because it's so easy to kind of have all these subconscious things going on, right, where Mm
0: -hmm. you're just going Mm -hmm. through
2: the motions, you're going through something, you're having all these feelings, but not even really recognizing those things or being present. So having that interruption and having people name some of those things, and having a moment where you have the opportunity to pause and really see and Mm -hmm. think about what you're thinking. And okay. how you're thinking and think about the emotions you're having.
1: So just yeah. doing that, just stopping and reflecting on what's going on with you, you you experience that is, is really helpful.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And especially some of the things, you know, with cognitive behavioral therapy specifically is what am I in control of in this situation and what am I not? Mm-hmm. And being able to let go of some of those things mm-hmm. and um, giving mm-hmm. yourself some space, you know, mm-hmm. to process in whatever way that looks like.
1: hmm it actually is a tool to be able to use in sort of dealing with your own psychological experience. And was it important that it wasn't just you alone, but that there were others that were involved in that talk or that class?
2: I think having that shared experience. Mm -hmm. And I think that's part of what's so powerful about this podcast. Like Mm -hmm. I cannot tell you how listening to other people share their stories has just impacted me so much and helped me to process my experiences and also just to not feel alone. You're processing these similar experiences with other people that, you know, and maybe one person's experience was different than yours, but you're going to hear different aspects of people's experiences and whether they're varied or similar to yours. And it just makes such a huge difference to not feel alone.
1: So I got to tell you, I almost got, I got a little chill when you said that in a good way. And not only because that's part of the goal of the the big goal of the podcast is to connect people through their stories, but just even aside from that, how powerful it is when people connect with each other. I mean, there you are in Virginia and you probably now like, you know, people in the podcast were from all over, right?
2: And it was interesting to me, too, because, you know, there's people in New York that experienced these tremendous surges and everything from the beginning and, you know, all over, you know, people in uh, Washington and that kind of thing. And I'm in a smaller rural area and we had that kind of trickle effect, mm-hmm. but the experience of it was still very similar in the stressors and the thoughts and the anticipation and all of those things and just being able to relate and connect with those things.
1: Exactly. And, you know, in the time when we think a lot about, you know, the things that connect us, the things that, that tear us apart even, right? It's been a rough year. That What a powerful statement. You're hearing a story from a, an ICU nurse in New York City, and you're connecting with that story in a way that's just so powerful. And actually, it reminds me of the other side of it, because I think you had mentioned that one of the things that was hard, maybe still is hard, is what happens around the pandemic on social media and politics. What, what was your experience of that?
2: I think that's been one of the biggest strains in the pandemic is mm-hmm. all of the misinformation and conspiracy theories and the fighting. I completely deactivated my Facebook account. I mm-hmm. just did not mm-hmm. deal with the stress of right. getting on there. I was trying originally to kind of share some good information that I knew mm-hmm. was solid, good information about ways to be safe and what we know about COVID. And uh, eventually I just couldn't be on there anymore. And the same with even the news media, you know, um, Mm -hmm. everybody's trying to get your attention and um, the way that things were being discussed around the virus and masking and all these debates and everything and the politics of it. Mm -hmm. It was just so frustrating when you're working on the front lines and taking care of this and seeing this in real life And then you have all of these people arguing with what you're seeing and saying it's not real or saying it's a conspiracy or masking is a conspiracy or, you know, those kind of things. It was just I don't know if I have a good word for it. Frustrating doesn't feel like it. I mean, it made me really angry a lot of times and I just couldn't handle being angry and frustrated all the time on top of dealing with all the emotional stuff at work.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, it speaks to how powerful it was for you that you turned off Facebook, right? I mean, it's one thing to turn off, you know, news. I think we all in some way have probably turned down, at least if not off, some of the ways we used to get news. But turning off your social media, that's a bigger one. Are you still deactivated on your social media?
2: Yes. And... I don't know that I'll go back to Facebook. And if I do, I think I will whittle down my following list to just some businesses and that kind of thing. Because that is one thing that's annoying with social media is that when you get off, you are disconnected, you know, whether it's from local businesses or different events that are going on or groups, you know, there's even a group with my classmates that I'm, you know, not participating in right now because it's social media. But So if I did go back on at all, I think I would just use the account strictly for those kind of things and not for social connection. It's just amazing. I mean, even friends and family, you know, misinformation or conspiracy things or arguing with your experience. And you're just, it's just like, I'm working in an ICU taking care of these patients. It's real. We aren't making up these numbers, you know?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, we've heard it so many times and I still don't know that I can get my head around it. First of all, it's the entire opposite of what you said about connecting to the stories of other nurses and healthcare workers, right? And on the podcast and otherwise. Those are people you don't know. And actually in some ways, it's a sort of social media thing, right? A podcast and you're connecting around a pandemic in a way that's healing and helpful. And then this is the opposite, you know? Did you actually interact with any of them around it? Did you try to sort of talk it through or, or no, or if you did, how did that go?
2: Yeah, I did initially. I would try and I tried to not always do it on social media. Sometimes I would try to text them separately or something like that to make it more of a personal connection. And it just typically didn't go anywhere. I didn't feel like I really changed anybody's mind tremendously. It just it feels like we live in a time where opinion is fact kind of and people are scared and don't know how to necessarily get great information. And so what they feel is what they believe, period. And it's really hard to combat that.
1: I was literally just about to ask you if you had a theory. I was going to say it isn't your job to be a social scientist and answer these questions. But do you have a theory about it? And actually, that's a pretty darn good theory that there's fear involved and in an environment of fear opinion can seem like fact and what's really striking to me is how you were able to make decisions and take control and it wasn't easy you know i want to talk with these people i want to help because you're probably worried about them you know i want to help them so swinging back to the you kind of it was like a wake-up moment when you you heard the person from psychology talk and started really thinking about your own psychological experience and others how has it gone for you have you decided to do any work on your own or get into treatment or I mean I know you're still working and doing school I think so have you done anything you know specifically for yourself
2: yeah so at the time I didn't I mean that talk was super helpful and it was great but that was prior to our surge and then kind of when our surge happened it was head down go time and coming out of that and then finishing up school. Now I am going to be starting some telehealth counseling here in the next week or so. And I'm excited about that. I've done counseling in the past and I've found it to be really helpful. I feel like it's having another person who's got an objective perspective and can listen to some of your thoughts or experiences and help you to frame those things, but also give you some tools of working through things and I guess, you know, kind of being proactive and present in that rather than just going through the motions or living, you know, like we were talking about before, kind of where there's just a subconscious level of stuff that's all going on that you're not really conscious of yep. being conscious of those things and knowing what messages you're telling yourself and being able to process an experience and hear someone else's perspective on it. Those can all be really, really
1: helpful. That's so perfectly said. I can't even say it that well. I mean, the way you describe it, and that's in very practical terms, something about this relationship, it's a therapeutic relationship, it's objective, there's a way of doing the work, it brings you into the moment, you're present, and you're reflecting on yourself. And out of that, do you even remember, have a sense of like, I did therapy, and it helped me I
2: had some pretty hard family events mm-hmm. went years and years and years ago, and I did some therapy and it helped me tremendously. I mean, at the time I was having difficulty sleeping and all these other kind of things, and it was cognitive behavioral therapy and just giving some tools to frame the thoughts and emotions and process what I was going through. And it was tremendously helpful.
1: It's such a no brainer. I literally just heard an NPR story about getting therapy out into the retail space, you know, and- For that to be surprising to most people, it's hard for me to get my head around because what you said, when you ask people that have really been in therapy, they say what you said. It's not rocket science. It's like going to the psychological gym and the person knows what they're doing. You're in the moment and you come out and and you think back. And that really helped me. That really helped me with this and this and this. So I'm glad to hear you're getting back into it. And you said something about doing online or how do you feel about that? You haven't started it yet, but did you choose that because it's convenient? And what do you think that's gonna be like?
2: I mean, for me, it's mostly a convenience issue, just it would be quite a drive to go to an office and that kind of thing. But I think it'll be great. I I think that, you know, it's just really personal preference. I don't think there's a right or wrong, whether you do it online. I mean, you even, you know, you can access therapy via text or on a phone call now, or you can go in the office and sit in the presence of another person whatever works for people and whatever they're comfortable with, I would definitely encourage them to give it a try and even try different modes. You know, it might not always be the perfect fit the first try and that's okay.
1: That's also fantastic advice, Emily. And how did you get involved with being at a a news conference and a press conference around the legislation for healthcare wellness?
2: So I'm part of the American Nurse Association and the Virginia chapter specifically, and our CNO had come and asked a couple of us if we'd be willing to share some of our experiences in working with COVID patients and our experiences in healthcare to support this bill. Mm -hmm. So I agreed and it was really interesting because I don't think I had really stopped and started to kind of process my experience until I started talking about these issues of mental health and healthcare, And it was so eye opening for me. And it was ironic to a degree because I felt like I knew a lot of the things I was saying about barriers to healthcare workers seeking mental health and about some of the burnout issues and that kind of thing. But again, yeah. it was just there in the background and I hadn't stopped and thought about it and processed or implemented it until this event happened that kind of forced me to do so. And that was kind of a catalyst also for me to start processing everything that's happened over the last year. And it's been really interesting.
1: in some ways you might say you had to stop a few times for things to sort of sink in. Cause you, again, we, we're not emphasizing this, but you're doing your day-to-day work every day, saving lives and helping people heal and dealing with really intense tragedy and you know, you kind of had to sort of stop and reflect a few times. And it's also really interesting because we see people on TV and you did a great job, you know, as a spokesperson. And we think, oh, well that, you know, this is at the end of a, of a progression, right? But actually for you sort of had, you know, telling you the story, even just telling the story made you really think differently and reflect on yourself am i right that you you said something about you know you heard on the news and this story is out there that mental health is really a concern with the pandemic and mental health services are overwhelmed didn't you say that and that that even made you think "Hmm, you know i don't want to burden the system even more is that right
2: yeah, I think that's a huge barrier for healthcare workers. You know, we're caregivers and we right. want to help people. And I realize there can be some stigma with mental health, but I think a bigger issue in healthcare is us feeling like we're in the caregiving role. Yeah, there were times for sure during the surge and even early on in the pandemic, when I was dealing with a lot of kind of the anger and frustration and confusion and anxiety, where I thought I should do some kind of counseling. And I ended up kind of waiting it out and not pursuing it right away at that time. And one of the barriers for me was thinking, was hearing those stories about how overwhelmed the mental health care workers are right now with all the people. And and I see it in clinic every day. I mean, you know, patients coming in, I hardly ever have a patient who doesn't express increased issues with anxiety and depression and everything right right now with all the stuff. And so I laughed at myself when I realized that was one of the things I was thinking that was kind of stopping me from really pursuing counseling.
1: Thank you for sharing that. It's such a genuine moment and it highlights a number of things. It highlights just how fragile it is, like the pathway to seeking treatment and how small a thing can derail you, anyone. And then again, to your point as healthcare in this podcast is primarily about healthcare workers, right? And they're helpers, they're healers. So they're gonna say, oh, I'll be in the back of the line. And you know, I, I can wait, you know, we have a way of seeing all the people in that line and the stories. Out there about mental health services um, being uh, stressed because all the people coming forward, you know, are out there in a sense to you know pull more people in and say you know this mental health is you know the next pandemic or the next surge you know, in a sense, but it can actually work in the opposite. Um, you know, you mentioned your your chief nursing officer, and I, I asked people who've been working in systems during the pandemic you know what was your experience as a leader because i'm a leader in in healthcare i've learned a lot by listening to people what was your experience of your leaders and leadership during the pandemic
2: i cannot speak highly enough for my direct leadership our nurse manager and assistant nurse manager were incredibly supportive they checked in with us daily how are you guys doing what do you need you know, our manager went out and purchased some eye goggles and different PPE stuff for people Mm -hmm. and communication was so important. And she put together a binder with updates daily for what we knew about COVID, how we were going to respond. They put together a team and figured out how we would respond to code situations so that everybody would be protected with COVID and just incredibly supportive open door policy. If anyone was having a hard day and just needed to talk or anything, our direct leadership was incredibly incredibly supportive um, and there've
1: been varied stories about that so what do you think made the difference so uh, what, what did they do i mean if you so your advice to me and other leaders you know what are the three things that you would say are most important for leadership during a crisis
2: so openness and honesty mm-hmm. i think that sometimes there's this tendency especially in systems to kind of almost have that Authoritarian or paternalistic type of leadership, where it's like the people at the top, you know, have the information and we'll disseminate it to you as needed. But in this situation, it was needed to be disseminated clearly and frequently because mm-hmm. it was such an anxiety producing situation and there was so little that we knew. So having information and knowing how we were responding as a unit, as an organization, as soon as possible was key. Mm-hmm. And being authentic and genuine. I think mm-hmm. is really important. And then having that kind of respectful relationship with your employees so that you know they can feel free to come and express concerns or fears or frustrations in those kind of scenarios.
1: That's so, so helpful. It's a perfect list. And when I listen to the podcast, I'm going to write it down actually. Um, so thank you for that. And as we're coming toward the end of the podcast, first of all, I just really want to thank you for being with us today. I was thinking about your pathway to, to this moment where you and I are talking is really interesting, right? Because we wouldn't probably be here talking if you hadn't had those moments of stopping and reflecting, and and then and actually connecting through the podcast and listening to other people's stories and then being asked to be the spokesperson for the legislation is so interesting. And I'm so thankful that all of those things happened and that, you know, now you are absolutely giving back. I mean, the, the things that, that we've talked about and that you've said are undoubtedly going to be helpful to people. They're already helpful to me. Let me just ask you, as we're finishing up, is there anything else that you had wanted to bring up?
2: I'm so grateful to you all for putting this together and giving so many of us the opportunity to share our stories and experiences. I think that's incredibly helpful, and for the work in destigmatizing, um, if that's the right word, uh, mental oh. health and that kind of thing, because it's so important. And like you said, it, you know, having it show up at Walmart and CVS and that kind of thing, super important. It needs to be normal. And then I would just encourage other people that are listening that have gone through you know, this whole pandemic and had their experiences, whatever your experience has been and however you're processing it and feeling it, it's not wrong. Whether, you know, I've heard people share about going home and crying every night, but then I've also, you know, even personally had experience of almost feeling numb some of the time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I realized when I was watching some random movie
0: mm-hmm. and just
2: started sobbing because I was thinking about my patients and their experiences, But that was a safe outlet for me. And prior to that, I hadn't been kind of overwhelmed with all those emotions at that time. So I would encourage people just to find an outlet take some time to stop and process and work through it. And it's okay, whatever that looks like for you.
1: And you actually just prompted one more question for me, because I think you're the first person that has at least told us that your significant other, your husband, is a farmer. Do you live on a working farm? And has that played a role at all in in anything like uh, keeping you grounded or, or no?
2: My husband is a wonderful human being and he's definitely helped keep me grounded. I haven't had a lot of opportunity to interact with the farm this past year just because of everything with the pandemic and school and everything, unfortunately, but I'm really excited about the work they're doing on the farm. So,
1: Well, but at least you've, hopefully you get good food, right? And good vegetables and that part of it's taken care of.
2: Absolutely. Yes. Good, fresh, healthy food is certainly beneficial.
1: Well, while while we're at it, let's thank him for what he's doing. I, I love the bumper sticker, you know, no farms, no food. So thank you. Absolutely. Him him. So again, Emily, thank you so much for being with us and, and what you're doing in your role. And um, I know that this will have an impact. So, and we wish you well. Thank you. Thank you all so much. I really appreciate it.
0: Lift the Mask, Voices of Heroes in a Silent Pandemic with Dr. John Santo Pietro. Executive produced by Kevin M. Lynch, The Quell Foundation, and Mod Worldwide. Managing producer Sarah Marshall, theme song by Musical Smile. The show is engineered and edited by Scott Waz and Steve Campagna of Philadelphia Post. Assistant audio editor Vlad Radu, film editor at Mod Worldwide. Voiceover artist Sinead Doyle. Research and development by Colleen Lowe, Nick Lee. Jessica Ripper, and Caitlin Spurlock. Special thanks to Renee Wilk and Brittany McCormick as associate producers. Please rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts and you might hear your review on a future episode. Got a question? Email the Quell Foundation at liftthemask at thequellfoundation.org for sponsorship information or to find out how you can share your story as a guest on a future episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever great podcasts are downloaded. Also, please remember to share this podcast with friends and family who would enjoy this content. This is not a podcast for personal disclosure of suicidal thoughts or behaviors, and is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health professional. If you are in crisis, please call 911 or go to your nearest emergency department for assistance. Call 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255, or text HELP to 741-741 if you're thinking about suicide. The Quell Foundation is a registered 501c3 not-for-profit organization Benefiting the over 62 million Americans living with a mental health illness. Tax ID 475127883.